Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, the Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, the legend of Rogers Rangers and the lost silver Madonna. A mystery and a legend, as well as an important time in history. We're taking you back to 1759, the French and Indian Wars in America, also called the Seven Years' War. A trying time for the new colonies, as Britain and France both fought for control of fledgling America from Maine to the Great Lakes, using Indian tribes and Tories allied to one side or the other, leaving American colonists to fight constantly for their survival. The mystery, the whereabouts of what is known as the Silver Madonna, which historical accounts describe as a ten-pound piece of silver in the shape of a rosette-crowned Virgin Mary, with an infant Jesus on her knees holding up a tiny globe. Its cash value? Probably around $15,000. Its historical value? A priceless artifact, which has been searched for for over 250 years and never found, along with a pair of golden candlesticks, a huge ruby ring, a golden calf, a church bell, silver-plated copper chandeliers, a gold case, gold coins, a chainmail iron shirt dating back to the 1200s, and 1,700 guineas. Historians are not sure if those George II guineas, which is what they had to have been considering the date, were made of gold, silver, or platinum but the chances are they were platinum. There would be a huge difference in value between them. If they were gold, they'd be worth around $2.5 million today. All the objects just mentioned were stolen from a Jesuit mission in an Abenaki Indian village in Quebec and was transported by British soldiers along various paths to the fort at what they called Number 4 at what is today Charlestown, New Hampshire. From there, its path is a matter of research and speculation. It has been sought after by hundreds of professional and amateur treasure hunters. It's said that the candlesticks were found in a farm field in Connecticut in 1816, and the rest was either never found or never reported as being found. The 1759 military campaign that gave rise to the legend of the Silver Madonna is well documented. In an effort to strike back against the French and Indian raids on British settlements in the Upper Valley and beyond, Robert Rogers, who acted as a mercenary for the British during two major wars, and who we will introduce you to minutes from now, led his rangers on a lengthy overland trek from Albany, New York, to what is today Odenac, on the banks of the St. Lawrence River in Quebec. They then attacked an Abenaki Indian village on the St. Francis River, just before it connects with the St. Lawrence between Montreal and Quebec City, and we'll describe what took place there soon as well. But first we need to share the story of just who Robert Rogers was, and exactly what was going on at that time and place in American history, to give you the full picture. Robert Rogers is an interesting character in 18th century American war history. Only a few have treated him as a hero. Many others have seen him as a mercenary who profited from two wars, the French and Indian War and the American Revolution, a mercenary who sold out to the highest bidder and who allowed the men and Indians who fought for him to kill, scalp, and plunder with no mercy. He was also the man responsible for tricking a confession out of Nathan Hale, the young spy and martyred hero of the American Revolution a fact that librarian James Hudson discovered as recently as the year 2000, and what a find that was, when he was studying an unpublished manuscript donated to the Library of Congress by the Tiffany family, descendants of Connecticut loyalists. As most of you know, Tories, or those loyal to the British during the Revolution, did as much to damage the cause of freedom as they could, financially and otherwise, believing that their best interest lay in supporting the king and betraying George Washington, who they thought of as a fool. We all know how that ended up. Not well for the Tories, who ended up the fools. For many years, 
Very few documents have been made available from Tory families of the Revolutionary era, as these families were trying to shelter their family names after the Revolution. So much of what they did to subterfuge the cause of freedom is still hidden from history. That's why we don't hear about too many post-war reprisals against them. Robert Rogers was born in Methuen, Massachusetts on November 17, 1731. As a youth, he served as a scout during the conflicts between the settlers and the Indians. And he was known to be an expert woodsman, having learned much from the Indians regarding hand-to-hand fighting, stealth, camouflage, and self-sufficiency in the wilderness. He became a leader of men as he grew out of his teens and learned that his specialty of conducting surprise raids and use of guerrilla warfare tactics was a valuable commodity. By the time the French and Indian War began in 1754, Rogers was 23 years old and leading his own band of cutthroats. The British were only too glad to pay him a commission for scouting and conducting raids on enemy positions, the enemy at that time being the French and their Indian allies. The rangers were mostly farmers and tradesmen from from small New England frontier towns. They disdained uniforms as well as authority, but they enjoyed killing and looting, and Rogers allowed them free reign. When British Major General William Shirley commissioned the Rangers in 1756, awarding Rogers the rank of captain, Rogers led a band of some 60 men. He did so well that by 1758, Rogers rose to the rank of Major and was given command of nine companies totaling 600 men. As the fighting grew more intense, General Jeffrey Amherst, commander of the troops at Fort Ticonderoga near the New York-Vermont border, decided to call on Rogers for his services. Amherst wanted to launch a retaliatory strike against the French and their Indian allies, and Amherst's intelligence told him that the tiny village of St. Francis, which was home to a small Catholic mission and a tribe of Abenaki Indians, would be the perfect target. Amherst wanted to completely destroy the village in order to illustrate to the French and their allies that there was no safety from the power of the British Army, but since this was very likely to involve outright murder of women and children, he needed to avoid using uniformed British regulars and used Rogers' Rangers as his weapon of destruction. In his orders, Amherst wrote, in typical British fashion, to spare the lives of women and children, no doubt believing from past experience that his orders would go unheeded in that regard. And Rogers, in his usual fashion, would later respond in writing that they did so. However, some witnesses who were there would end up disagreeing. Many more women and children died in that attack than survived. The Jesuit mission there at St. Francis was known to have some valuables, so that would make the job all the more tempting for the rangers, Amherst knew. The reason for this strike, Amherst had sent a party of soldiers out under the command of Captain Quentin Kennedy to try and barter with the Abenakis to change their alliance with the French, but that mission came to an abrupt end when Kennedy's men were captured, and some of the men were tortured and killed by the Abenakis. Two of his officers were turned over to Montcalm as prisoners, and since they were not in uniform, Montcalm ordered them hung. Amherst vowed revenge. The village of St. Francis was located on the southern shore of the St. Lawrence River in Canada, and it was regarded mainly as an Abenaki Indian village, although it housed members from other tribes that had been driven from New England in other conflicts, as well as white settlers that had either by choice or by capture adopted Indian ways. The village consisted of what were then typical European-style homes centered around a church, This Abenaki village had a reputation among American colonists who lived to the South as being the launching point for raids into their communities. Rogers, in his journal, says, To my own knowledge, in six years' time, the St. Francis Indians had killed and carried into captivity on the frontiers of New England 400 persons. We found in the town, hanging on poles over the doors, etc., 
about six hundred scalps, mostly English. So the Abenakis were not innocent churchgoers, and neither were the men who comprised the rangers. In that era, and in that region, it was kill or be killed for most. John Stark, one of Ethan Allen's men, and Israel Putnam, both Revolutionary War heroes, served as rangers under Rogers during the French-Indian Wars, and lived to fight against the British during the Revolution. Rogers' expedition, with about 170 men, left Albany headed north for Crown Point in early September of that year, reaching Crown Point by September 11, 1759. In that year, the French were well aware of the rangers' ability to fight. They had fought on snowshoes and caused heavy French casualties fighting near Fort Carillon at the southern end of Lake George in January of 1757, then again in 1758, at the same location. Rangers were heavily involved in the siege of Louisburg in Nova Scotia, and they killed 100 French troops in the Battle of Carillon in July of 1758, so the French did all they could to keep informed of the rangers' whereabouts. The expedition left Crown Point on the night of September 13th. Its departure was not a well-kept secret, although Rogers and Amherst were the only ones to know its actual destination, and Amherst took steps to publish false instructions about Rogers' movements. The party, occupying 17 whaleboats, rowed north from Crown Point. Due to heightened French patrolling in the wake of Kennedy's mission, they made very slow progress. The early days brought some notable disappointments, as more than 40 men turned back early due to a variety of accidents and illnesses. Because the French fleet was controlling the lake, Rogers' boats, having to traverse the narrows, had to beach and hide during the day and travel only on foggy nights or nights with little to no moon. Then a keg of black powder exploded, injuring several men. Then a large number of the party fell ill, including more than half of the Indian contingent. Rogers had to send them back to the fort, led by several of his own healthy men. Then a storm hit them out in the center of the lake. Only two days into his mission, and he had lost 42 men. Rogers reached the head of Missisquoi Bay early on September 23rd, where the boats and supplies for the return trip were concealed and left with two Stockbridge warriors as guards. We'll return with our story, The Legend of Rogers Rangers and the Lost Silver Madonna, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Unfortunately for Rogers, his landing had not gone unnoticed. Although he had successfully eluded the naval patrols, the British victory at Quebec on September 13th had resulted in the movement of French troops toward Lake Champlain, and there were increased French patrols in the area. Bourlamaque, one of Montcalm's most capable officers, had personally scouted Missisquoi Bay and declared it a good place from which the British could launch an attack. While French scouting expeditions the previous days had not turned up anything noteworthy, one party sent out the very day Rogers landed found a British oar floating in the bay. That raised the red flag. The next day, a larger party of scouts discovered the boats. Some were destroyed, and others were taken by the French for their use. Bourlamaque learned on September 25th that a sizable British force was in the area, and immediately raised the alarm to Montreal and sent out detachments in force to scour the countryside. He also concluded that the force might be targeting St. Francis in retaliation for Kennedy's capture, and stationed several hundred men near the site where the boats were hidden to set up an ambush in the event of Rogers' return. Rogers at first chose a course that headed primarily east in order to avoid both the French defenses at Illinois and the more northerly route that Kennedy had followed. This took the party through extremely swampy, boggy terrain. 
Two days into the trek, the two Indian guards brought the news that the boats had been taken by the French. This change of circumstance led Rogers to hold a council to discuss their options. As they were behind enemy lines and far from any support, their options didn't look too good. Rogers reported that they decided to continue with the mission and then to attempt to retreat the only way we could think of, he said, by the way of number four. The fort at number four was a mid-18th century stockade fortification protecting plantation number four, the northernmost British settlement along the Connecticut River in the province of New Hampshire, until after the French and Indian War. It was located in the present-day town of Charlestown, New Hampshire. Today you can find a recreation of the fort, which was built in 1960, which now functions as an open-air museum and has been added to the New Hampshire State Register of Historic Places. If you ever get up in that area, you should also schedule some time to see Fort William Henry and Fort Ticonderoga to get a real sense of the past during these years. As part of this daring plan, Rogers sent Lieutenant Andrew McMullen and a half-dozen men overland to Crown Point with instructions to deliver a cache of food to the confluence of the Connecticut and Ammanusig Rivers, a point about 60 miles north of Number 4. McMullen and his six men made the overland trek to Crown Point, which was more than 100 miles over difficult terrain, in nine days, arriving on October 3rd. Amherst immediately sent a ranger, Lieutenant Samuel Stevens, to Number 4, with specific orders to deliver supplies to the agreed rendezvous point and to wait there until either Rogers and his men appeared or Stevens felt that there was no probability of their appearance. Rogers and his men spent the next week slogging through swampy terrain, covering a distance Rogers estimated at 50 miles, during which the men were rarely dry. The conditions were so difficult that the French pursuit gave up, never discovering who they were looking for. On October 3rd, they finally reached dry land along the banks of the St. Francis River. The village of St. Francis, today called Odenac, lay downstream and across the river, and was closer than Rogers realized. Rogers kept a diary or journal of his actions, and here he wrote, We came in sight of the Indian town of St. Francis, which we discovered by climbing a tree at some three miles' distance. Here my party, consisting of 142, officers included, were ordered to refresh themselves. History tells us that all they had at that point was water, as the brutal trip had wiped out their food supplies. Rogers and his men eventually moved several miles upstream to locate a suitable ford. In spite of this, he reported that the crossing was attended with no small difficulty, with swiftly flowing water five feet deep. That evening, Rogers and one of his Indian scouts scouted their target, actually entering the village, which included a Jesuit church and they watched as the Indians engaged in what Rogers described as a high frolic, where he saw them execute dances with what he described as the greatest spirit. One story tells us that many of the Abenaki men had been called out by Governor Vaudreuil to assist in tracking down the mysterious British force, which had seemingly vanished. They would become a factor in hunting down Rogers' party to avenge the deaths of their families once they found out about the raid. But it is doubted that all the men in the camp left. On October 3rd, Vaudreuil wrote to Borlamake, that he had called on the Abenakis and some local militia to set up an ambush on the Yamaska River, the route Kennedy had used on his expedition. By the time Rogers and his company located the village of St. Francis, late on October 3rd, his force had been reduced to 142 men, and their rations had been completely exhausted. At 3 a.m. on October 4th, Rogers marched his men near the village and then divided them into five companies for the attack. The best shooters were placed to fire on anyone trying to escape the village. At about 5 a.m., the attack began. 
In complete surprise, they fell on the village inhabitants, many of whom were sleeping in their houses. There was little to no organized defense as Rogers and his men broke down doors and shot, tomahawked, or bayoneted people where they lay. Amherst's order to avoid killing women and children was lost in the frenzy. Any resistance was quickly dealt with, and many who tried to escape were shot by the sentries posted outside the village. Some inhabitants managed to reach their canoes and attempted to escape across the river. These were chased down and the canoes were sunk with their occupants, which included mothers and children. The village was set to the torch, including the church, which was first ransacked of all its valuables. As about two dozen rangers entered the church, upon reaching the altar, several of the rangers halted, stunned, staring with awe at a remarkable small statue. It was called the Silver Madonna, and at the time they saw it, it was reflecting the light of the fires from the burning village coming in through the windows of the church. It was said that the statue was made from native silver and gifted to the Abenakis. One of the rangers lifted it and carried it outside, wrapping it in a pillow sack and tying it to the back of a pack horse. As legend tells it, the ranger set the church ablaze upon leaving and watched as a priest struggling to save the church was seen burning in the doorway of the church as the attackers watched. Screams were heard from the attics of the small homes as those who stayed and tried to hide were burned alive. Others were shot trying to escape the village on foot or in canoes. Rogers wrote that they killed 200 enemies leaving 20 women and children to be taken prisoner. Other accounts placed the dead, at least in the village area, at around 35. Ranger casualties in the attack included one Indian scout killed and six men wounded, one of whom was Captain Amos Ogden, who was badly wounded. According to one story, 20 Abenaki women and children were captured. The chief's wife, two boys, and three girls were held captive while the rest were released, according to Rogers' journal. Rogers also liberated three captives, a ranger who was being held in the camp, a German girl, and a provincial soldier. In the retreat, five captives were taken from one band of rangers, and nearly all in a second party of 20 rangers were killed or captured. The only structures not destroyed were the storehouses, which contained corn that Rogers and his men would require as sustenance during their retreat. But that corn wouldn't last long. Only a few of the village's inhabitants at the time the raid began survived the experience. Robert Kirkwood, a Scotsman who had been mistreated by Shawnee earlier in the year, wrote that this was, I believe, the bloodiest scene in all America, the revenge upon us being made complete. Rogers interrogated some of the captives and learned that large companies of French and Indians were within easy marching distance, including a force of about 400 that was expected to arrive the next day. After a brief council, Rogers and his men agreed that the only reasonable means of retreat was to number four, a straight-line distance of about 200 miles, all through uncharted wilderness. Rogers and his men gathered up their loot and as much of the stored corn as they could carry and set off toward the south. News of the raid reached Trois Rivers, three rivers, around noon on the day of the raid and traveled quickly throughout the province. The attack on loyal allies of the French had to be answered, in spite of the larger threats posed by the armies of Amherst and Wolfe. Bourlamaque, in a somewhat naive move, sent a further 300 men to join the 400 already waiting the return of Rogers' men to their boats on Massisquoi Bay, unaware that Rogers knew his boats had been lost and had planned a different route of retreat. Vaudreuil also sent additional native reinforcement to assist in scouting the area around the bay. In Trois-Rivières, a small force of experienced fighters under Captain Jean-Daniel Dumas mustered to chase after Rogers. 
Going first to Yamaska to pick up some of the force that had gathered there, they finally reached St. Francis on October 5th, more than a day behind Rogers. A few men came out of the woods to join the party there as the carnage was surveyed and plans formulated to give chase. Rogers' force, burdened by supplies and prisoners, made fairly good progress, covering the 70 miles from St. Francis to Lake Mumford Magog in about eight days. This glacial lake stretches southward from Magog, Quebec, to Newport, Vermont. At this point, rations began to run out again, and Rogers made a critical decision. Somewhere near present-day Sherbrooke, Rogers broke the party up into companies of 10 to 20 men so that they might forage and hunt more effectively. While each party might be able to more readily supply itself for food, they also made easier targets for the pursuit, and several of the smaller ranger companies were tracked down by determined pursuers. According to one French account, some 40 of Rogers' men were killed and 10 were brought as prisoners back to St. Francis, although historian Frank McLinn says that the expedition had three officers and 46 other ranks killed or captured. At St. Francis, some of the prisoners fell a victim to the fury of the surviving Indian women, notwithstanding the efforts the Canadians could make to save them. Two of Rogers' men survived after being spirited away by a sympathetic English Indian to the relative safety of Trois Rivières. The journals of the later stages of the expedition provide only a fragmented picture of what occurred to those of Rogers' force that eluded the pursuit, as men subjected to exhaustion, exposure, and starvation are unlikely to make good reporters. The journal kept by Rogers was relatively terse concerning the trek to the Connecticut River, with, quote, many days tedious march over steep, rocky mountains or through wet, dirty swamps with the terrible attendance of fatigue and hunger. They reported eating bark, roots, mushrooms, and gnawed fragments of flesh off beaver skins. One widely reported account of cannibalism was recounted to historian Thomas Mant by Lieutenant George Campbell, in which his party of men came upon scalp remains trapped in logs on a small river, devouring part of them raw because they were too impatient to wait for a fire. Robert Kirkwood, in a relatively unadorned account, tells how Rogers killed one of their prisoners, an Indian woman, in fact that was the Abenaki chief's wife, butchered the remains and divided them among his men. Rogers wrote, One of the rangers, instead of more important plunder, placed in his knapsack a huge lump of tallow, which enabled him to fare comfortably upon his return, while many of his comrades who had secured more valuable articles perished with hunger. This is an important entry for treasure hunters because it indicates that the artifacts and loot stolen from the church was divvied up by the rangers and carried in knapsacks. After nine days of difficult travel, the group led by Rogers reached the appointed rendezvous, number four, presently the town of Charlestown, New Hampshire, on October 20th. He found there a burning fire and no provisions. Lieutenant Stevens, whom Amherst had sent the number four to deliver the provisions to the rendezvous, had camped below the rendezvous point, and men from his party went to the rendezvous daily and fired their muskets to see if anyone was nearby. After several days of this, Stevens gave up, eventually returning to Crown Point on October 30th. Amherst noted in his journal that Stevens should probably remain longer than he did. Rogers took the disappointment in stride. Leaving most of his emaciated company behind with promises to return with supplies in ten days, he and three men descended the Connecticut River on rafts, reaching number four on October 31st, where he was reportedly barely able to walk. Supplies were immediately dispatched upriver, which Rogers reported as reaching his starving men the tenth day after I left them. According to legend, one group of rangers leading two pack horses, 
one of which was carrying a part of the loot, was able to reach the southwestern edge of Lake Memphremagog in present-day New Hampshire, where the pack horse transporting the gold and silver chalices and silver Madonna went lame. Rather than taking the time to transfer the precious cargo to the other animal or bury it, the rangers simply abandoned it, or so the story goes. No doubt have starved. Had they the time, they would have eaten the pack horse and buried the valuables, but the pursuers were very close, and these men were on the run. The lake end here was shallow, so they decided to cross it, proceeding then toward the Connecticut River. The French stayed close on their heels, coming close enough to pick off four or five rangers each day as the pursuit continued. By the time they reached the Connecticut River, the surviving rangers numbered only four men. They were completely out of food. All they had were their guns and one pack horse carrying the silver Madonna. One of the surviving rangers, a sergeant named Amos Parsons, was familiar with the region they were traveling through. He told his companions that he thought he could lead them out of danger. They crossed the Connecticut River near the present-day town of Lancaster, then followed the Israel River upstream into the foothills of the White Mountains. They didn't know it, but by this time, their French pursuers, knowing there were only a few rangers left alive, had abandoned their mission and turned back. Out of food and unsuccessful at finding game, the four rangers then cut strips from their buckskins and boiled soup. They then began to climb higher into the White Mountains until they came to a rock overhang which acted as a shelter. Here, according to legend, they untied the silver Madonna, placing it in the corner of the shelter, then slaughtered the pack horse, not even taking time to cook it as they satisfied their extreme hunger, drinking the pack horse's blood and feasting on the raw meat. And just before sunrise, two of the rangers, not surprisingly, woke with severe stomach cramps, probably caused from the rawhide soup. Sergeant Parsons now had a fever and was ranging in and out of delirium. During one of his rages, he apparently spotted the silver Madonna at the far end of the shelter and became convinced that it was responsible for all their troubles, for the deaths of his friends, and that there must be a curse associated with it. In a rage, he was said to have grabbed the Madonna and thrown it down a steep bank where it careened off rocks before finally plummeted into the Israel River. After watching it sink into the river, Putnam began pulling large clumps of his hair out and was last seen screaming and running into the woods. He was never seen alive again. The three surviving rangers remained in the rock shelter trying to recover from their sickness for two days until the third morning when one of the rangers woke to find his two companions dead. Weak and disoriented, he left the shelter, climbed back down to the river, and continued walking along a game trail that parallels the Israel River. He hiked all that day and finally took shelter in a hollow log that night. The next morning he woke up and continued along the trail until he arrived at a small settlement of woodcutters which contained four families. After seeing his condition, he being emaciated and weak, his clothes in tatters, they took him in and fed and cared for him until his health returned. As he recovered, he shared the story of the raid on the Abenaki village, the theft of the silver Madonna, and the ordeal of fleeing from the French soldiers in the wilderness. He then told, in detail, how Sergeant Parsons threw the silver Madonna into the river, and that's how the legend grew. A few weeks after hearing the woodcutter's story, four of the woodcutters hiked out and found the shelter, along with the carcass of the dead pack horse and the two dead rangers. They also walked along the riverbank below the shelter looking for any sign of the silver Madonna, but saw nothing. As far as anyone knows, the silver Madonna has never been recovered. It weighed ten pounds, so it's very unlikely that it drifted far from where it entered the river. The spot where it is is said to be just downstream from the town of Jefferson. 
Others believed that the Silver Madonna was abandoned near the banks of Lake Mephrimagog. Others believe it was buried in a cave somewhere near the junction of the Israel and Connecticut rivers. Some have hunted all along the north slope of Mount Washington. A pair of gold candlesticks was reported as found in a farmer's field in Newport, Vermont, in 1816. On November 2nd, French scouts on the shores of Missisquoi Bay heard English voices. Investigating in force, they discovered five English survivors of the St. Francis raid, whom they took prisoner. These men reported that at least one more small company was in the area, and three more men were found. Their throats were slit when they were found to be carrying human flesh. November 2nd was also the day that Amherst learned that Rogers had executed the raid. The account, delivered by a French officer under a truce flag, included mention that women and children had been slain, an observation Amherst discounted. Rogers' second-in-command arrived at Crown Point on November 7th with Rogers' report. That same afternoon, an Indian from the expedition appeared at Crown Point with word that a party of Rogers' men was on the far side of the lake. The party consisted of six rangers, three prisoners, and a white woman who had been freed from captivity, as well as a large amount of gathered loot. Amherst replied to Rogers' report with approval. News of the raid was first treated with skepticism in the 13 colonies, but when confirmation came from Rogers himself, he and his men were treated as heroes. The New Hampshire Gazette devoted considerable space to coverage of the exploits of one of the province's famous fighters. The scope of the feat served to raise Rogers' popularity, even while he still worried about the fate of all his men. Many of the village's residents who were not present at the time of the raid continued to serve with the French forces in the war, settling in other native communities along the St. Lawrence. The village itself was eventually rebuilt. Rogers and his rangers would go on to raid St. Therese the following year. As for the silver Madonna and the loot taken from the church, only the chainmail vest and the gold candlesticks were ever reported as being found. In an L.A. Times article titled Treasure Hunters Still Ascend Mountains in Search of Artifacts by Wilson Ring, August of 2004, Randolph, New Hampshire, you'll find written, Almon Ferrer, 88, has heard stories all his life about missing treasure in the White Mountains, where he grew up. His uncle, a game warden who crisscrossed the mountains through much of the first half of the 20th century, always kept an eye out for it while he pursued poachers. Everybody's hunted for it, Farrar said, as he took a break from cutting firewood and the yard of his home in the Cascading Castle ravines. I tell you, it's rough up there. Up there, not far from Farrar's house, is some of the most rugged terrain in the northeast. That's where eight rangers from an elite force of frontiersmen attached to the British Army during the French and Indian War perished, supposedly while carrying a silver statue of the Virgin Mary and Christ Child. The rangers are believed to have taken the ten-pound statue, a ruby ring, a gold calf, and other priceless artifacts during a 1759 raid on a Jesuit mission at an Indian settlement in Quebec. Much of the treasure is still lost today, somewhere on the north side of 6,288-foot Mount Washington. Throughout the 19th century, treasure hunters prowled the mountains of New Hampshire, and some still come. Last summer, two men sought information about the ranger's path from the Lancaster Historical Society. The pair planned to use a metal detector to hunt the statue. Father Jacques Monet, director of the Jesuit archives in Toronto, can find no record of the missing artifacts, but says it's plausible that they would have been housed at the mission. They had these benefactors in Europe who would send these things to the missions, he said. Forty years of mission records were destroyed in the raid on St. Francis by rangers under the command of Major Robert Rogers, who in 1756 
formed a 600-man contingent that came to be known as Rogers Rangers. About 140 colonial soldiers and a handful of British regulars went up Lake Champlain and crossed the broad plains of the St. Lawrence Valley before attacking the Abenaki village of St. Francis near present-day Pierreville, Quebec. The raid at dawn on October 4, 1759 was revenge for a series of attacks by the Indians on the colonies. During the raid, Rogers' men stumbled across the Jesuit mission and helped themselves to gold and silver, including the replica of the seated Virgin Mary with the baby Jesus on her lap. Military historian Gary Zaboli, who was researching a book for the 250th anniversary of the war, found a November 1759 article in the New York Gazette that included a letter with a contemporaneous account of the raid. It read, The people did bring away considerable plunder, but they dropped them, or the greater part of them, before they arrived at Connecticut River. Tis also said that one man brought up 1,700 guineas, and another a silver image of 10-pound weight. That written by New Jersey Captain Amos Ogden in his letter from Fort No. 4 at Charleston, New Hampshire, after the raid. A description included in the 2002 History of Rogers Rangers by another military historian, Bert Garfield Losher, went further. Speaking of the statue, her head was surmounted by a high crown containing many points, covered by leafy rosettes. The infant Jesus resting on her knees wore no crown. In his little left hand, he held a globe of the world while his right hand was uplifted in the customary sign of benediction. Roger's plan was to return to Lake Champlain and sail back south in boats he had left in the Missisquoi Bay, but the French discovered the boats and destroyed them. His alternate route went through what is now northeastern Vermont and northern New Hampshire. The French and their Indian allies pursued the rangers, who were hampered by the weight of their plunder. As winter approached, they suffered from the cold and began to go hungry. The statue was in a knapsack carried by Sergeant Benjamin Bradley of Concord. When Bradley and eight other soldiers reached the Connecticut River, an Indian guide promised to show them a shortcut to a pass up the Israel River and home. Instead, they were led into the castle and Cascade ravines. One by one, the soldiers perished. The only survivor had no information about the statue. The article reads, In 1816, a farmer in either Newport, Vermont, or Quebec, reports vary, plowed up a pair of golden candlesticks valued at the time at $1,000. In 1827, an incense vessel was found on the banks of the St. Francis River in Quebec. Rusted muskets, tomahawks, decaying uniforms, and human remains, thought to be from the rangers, have been found throughout the region. Losher's book says the items plundered from St. Francis also included a ruby ring as big as your eye, a stash of coins, and a golden calf. The coins were said to have been buried near the spot where the Cow Brook flows into the Connecticut in Littleton, New Hampshire. The river has changed course since then, however, and now the spot is beneath the Moor Reservoir. It's unclear what condition the statue would be in today. Anthony Blumka, a New York antique dealer who specializes in medieval, renaissance, and baroque art, said silver would survive the intervening 245 years better than most other materials. It might stand a chance, he said. If so, there's still hope out there for many. I hope you enjoyed this story and legend, The Legend of Rogers, Rangers, and the Lost Silver Madonna, here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We've had a few recent reviews we'd like to share with you. The first one, My Two Cents, five stars. I love the stories and the host. Background sound effects are way too loud. They drown out the host. 
"'Please turn them down or stop using them altogether. "'Them from Papa Shine, Apple Podcast, U.S. "'And Papa Shine, please contact me by email "'at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com "'and let me know which episodes you heard "'where the background noise was too loud, "'cause I don't use background music or noise that often. "'But it's often enough that I can't go back and review every show, "'and even if I did, when I replayed them on my equipment, "'I'm not hearing the higher volume, so it helps.' When some of you listeners are listening on different equipment, it helps to hear from you where those sound problems are, and then I can fix them. Thank you, and thank you for your review. Thank you for listening to our show. We appreciate it. Next, savages? Neat repeatedly referring Native American as savages. It would be interesting to hear your choice of derogatory term for other minorities through history. A slave uprising from the point of view of plantation owners might be interesting. What would you use for Jewish people in Germany? Not woke, but aware. That one from Aimlessly Walking Fat, Apple Podcast, United States of America. And aimlessly, I'd like to answer you this way. I didn't myself refer to Native American as savages. You heard the term savages used often in the recent story we did called The Story of Brian Station. And when you heard the term savages used, those were used when I was reading from documents that were written back in the time. And back in the day, many people did call them savages. And if you think this show is picking on minorities, please do email me at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com and let me know exactly what minorities we've been picking on. As I recall, we've done some absolutely fantastic stories about minority heroes, so I'd be very interested in hearing from you regarding who you think we've been picking on here. This show, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, judges all men, past and present, by the content of their character, and we don't look at anyone through a woke filter. I would say thanks for your review, but I see it as being grossly unfair. Try harder next time. And this one, superb, five stars. Love the newest short stories of Crazy Tales. That one from Market Pop. And this one, five stars, one of the best podcasts I've heard. I enjoy every second. It's an engaging style that's enthralling and informative. One suggestion, we pronounce my state of Oregon as Oregon, not Oregon. That one from DeHolden, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, most, five stars. I'm truly enjoying this podcast. Great information. Love the Old West and its many diverse characters. John and crew, keep up the good work, sir. I'm making my way through as I've only recently discovered your work. I love the early colonial stories as well. Down from Gmart812, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to leave these reviews. They're appreciated and they help new listeners find us. We also appreciate our supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network, who donate a couple dollars a month, each month, to help us make it to 2001 Stories. We're moving fast in that direction. Brand new story next week Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe out there, and we'll be back soon. <laughs>